Hey, co-hosts. Hey, co-hosts. <laughs> hey, y'all. I'm Brittany Rogers, and I am working on nailing a perfect, slow, Detroit-style backwards skate. Truly love that for you, best. I am Ajne Dawkins, and I am currently shocked that I have completed my first journal, like, written in it until there are no more pages left. Ah, folks can do that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Shout out to bullet journaling. Listen. <laughs> and we are your co-hosts of Verses, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Oh, man. So today we've got an incredible guest. But before we get to that, I am curious, Brittany, what is your earliest memory of yourself? Ooh. I was maybe two or three. My family, like, we were going somewhere in the dead of winter, and my aunt dropped me in the snow. And the fit that I had was not reasonable for <laughs> For the simple act of being dropped at the age that I was. And that is how we discovered that it was snow that I was, in fact, afraid of. (laughs) What about you, Bess? What's your earliest memory? Ooh, I think that my earliest memory is being like, shoot, maybe five, six years old, somewhere like that. And sitting at this table in my mom's little apartment and eating. My mom could not cook, cannot cook. (laughs) Love you, mom, if you're listening to this. So many mom, yeah, I had nothing skills. to do with that, okay? Mom, Ooh, I did not tell Ajane to say that, mom. Listen, my mom has so many phenomenal skills. And what the folks in my family would do when they couldn't cook is, like, make a thing super basic, but, like, really gas it up with language. So my mom would just, like, cook ground beef and put it on a plate and squirt some mustard over it and be like, loose burger. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it. So I, like, just had these memories of me, like, sitting at the table just shoveling ground beef into my mouth. <laughs> And being like, I want loose burger for dinner. <laughs> a heck. I wish I could get my kids to be like, this is the meal for today. I'm my grandfather used to make hot dog on a stick. <laughs> and I used to love hot dog on a stick. <laughs> so um, that's me. This is so interesting. Okay. I love talking about memory and all of the things that it unlocks. And I'm really excited to be talking to Ramika Bingham Richard today. Yes. About her wonderful new collection. Yeah, I love I love talking about memory as well. And I think it gives us such perspective. So that's why I'm super excited to talk to Ramika about her new book, Soul Culture, Black Poets, Books, and Questions That Grew Me Up. Brittany, do you want to read her bio? Ramika Bingham Richard, a native of Phoenix, Arizona. She is a Kaveh Kanem Fellow, an Appalachian poet. Among other journals, her work has been published in the New York Times, The Writer's Chronicle, New Letters, Callaloo in Essence. Her newest work and first book of prose, Soul Culture, Black Poets, Books and Questions That Grew Me Up, will be published by Beacon Press in 2022. She is currently the director of Quality Enhancement Plan Initiatives at Old Dominion University and resides in Norfolk, Virginia with her husband and children. Beautiful. All right, let's get into this episode. Ramika, hey. <laughs> we're so excited to be here with you today. Oh, oh gosh, you guys, you know how excited I am. I love you too. Not I'm already we emotional, you. we're just starting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We love you back. We're wondering before we jump into anything else, if you could start us off with a poem. Yeah, absolutely. 
So let's read a poem um, from Soul Culture. This is Missing You. Uh, do you guys know that Diana Ross song? Do you guys know Missing You? Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, there it is, right? Everybody sings it. It can be hollow, juked, or spare. I grew up there in the middle earth of music. All along they'd used it and I was unaware until the real to real resurfaced and my voice squeaking, grainy, blare, mimicking Diana rooted out the heart of the heart. Tell me why the road turns. No one had the answer. We were a convoy of melancholy or joy. Little unsaids, before or after the final mix, this is where the art lives, the open of the full mouth kiss. My parents did this, fled here and there, loved each other, burdened me. Their history now, it's brass and clang, something like a crier's flame, this burning knot I cannot name. Why would you start us like that? (laughs) Why would you open of the full mouth kiss? Hey, hey. The brass and clang just come on. Come on. Sonnets Sonnets (laughs) is like where my life is right now. I'm writing like Mm. sonnets all over the place. But that one I wrote like a a long time ago and tried to fit it into Starlight and Air. I'm sure it didn't work, but it it worked as kind Mm. of part of the opening of the memoir, right? Like of all of these, you know, music, we always go back to music, but all of these different kind of dichotomies between what's happening uh, in your house and and in the people with the people around you and, you know, how love is strained all the time, right? So beautiful. And you already, you're sparking so many questions and so many thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) But before I get to run in my mouth, we want to know what's moving you these days. What are you thinking on? Y'all, there's so much stuff. So, you know, like I said, I'm writing sonnets, so I'm working on a new book of poems and all. Um, Something about my grandmother's a lot. I've been reading, you know, since the pandemic started, I've been reading like really heavy nonfiction so kind of going back through things like cast, uh, Isabel Wilkerson. And then on the other hand, I'm reading like all of these black YA romance novels. They're moving me like crazy. This uh, book, Love Radio by Ebony Liddell. Yes. My God, my God, yes. I love it so much. When do we get to see complex black kids like that in a book? So I, you know, so those are my two bookends right now, like swinging between really heavy nonfiction and like reading fiction that, you know, just makes me happy, like just joy. I need that deeply. Yeah. You know, we're wondering, and especially for you as a person who's been in the literary community for so long at this point, right? How has your concept of literary citizenship shifted over time? Oof, that's so important. I mean, a student asked me one time, we were doing like ethnographic work and like doing archival research. And they were like, you know, who owns the archives? Mm -hmm. Who's left out of the archives, right? So, so much of like, you know, this talk about memory and then leading to this idea of literary citizenship, it comes back to the fact that like these stories won't get told. Like the black woman's interior, like nobody's going into that unless it's us. Right. And then nobody understanding the import of something like a Lucille Clifton freaking, you know, handing over her paycheck to a student that, you know, was desperate in a, in a dire situation without anybody knowing. And then she wouldn't let me tell that story. I didn't tell that story until she passed, right? Like, so that's mm-hmm. a story in soul culture. But for me, it was super important because 
her praxis was just like what was in her poems, right? And so literary citizenship for me, you know, going back to people like Lucille Clifton and Erica Hunt is like, practice what you preach. I mean, it's, yes. it's as simple as that, right? If I'm writing these poems that are about collecting memory and like making sure that we're wrestling with, you know, the elders and like all the work that they did and, and wrestling with our own flaws, like we have to let people come as they are flawed or not. And we have to like help carry them like that, you know, it, it's part of like my spiritual ethic, but it's for sure part of like what made me as a writer. In the beginning, it was so much for me about reverence and awe. Like I was just in awe of everyone. Like I just, I was deeply moved. That's why I started doing those interviews because I was like, oh my God, if I could just talk to Natasha Trethaway, like everything would be different. You know what I mean? And it was true. Her work was everything for me. So now when people reach out and they're like, if I could just talk to you about your work, I'm like, this is the greatest gift to me because it's coming full circle. It's coming full circle. So you can't, you can't like deny that as part of your literary citizenship. Like, giving people a hand up when people gave you a hand up like that's what we do and also we're artists like ain't nobody gonna care about this work unless it's us like you know the the most famous writers i know can still walk into the grocery store they're not britney spears right like so you know nobody is holding this work as deeply as those doing this work and so that for me is just a real really important part of like how we continue to build on this thing that we love so deeply and that has you know for all intents and purposes, save many of our lives. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Like, so do the work, like take care first. And then we can talk about beauty, right? Like then we can talk about these poems. Yeah. But first, mm. like if, if you hungry, we can't talk about beauty yet, right? Like, because you need the necessities first. So just, you know, take care of people because you're not thinking that deeply about the world if you're not thinking about that first. Like your poems ain't that deep, <laughs> right? Yeah. I do want to ask about when you were in the process of archiving the stories of these other folks, because I think one of the things that struck me about Soul Culture was that it felt like a coming of age story. Among, yeah. It felt like a Black girl poet coming of age story. Uh, I'm showing you these questions that folks asked that grew me up, but here's like the love that grew me up. Here is the the life experiences that grew me up. Mm-hmm. How did this project evolve into that hybrid text of being this like personal <laughs> memoir? Like at what point were you like, yes, this story about my time with Lucille Clifton goes here. And then the story about my husband being at this family function and being like, we're about to look up Ramika and yeah. find out that she's this popping writer. Like, at what point hey. were you like, both of these things need to exist in the same space? Because I, like I said, I've, I've never seen the archive work like this. Oh, that makes me so happy. Like, just the question of that makes me so happy. So from the beginning, I thought this was a book of interviews that I had done. And maybe some essays about the craft of the writer that I was interviewing after. So, for instance, there would be the Lucille Clifton interview or the Forrest Hamer interview. And then there'd be a very kind of academic literary journal style essay about one aspect of his craft and writing, right? So that's what I wrote a proposal for. And that's what I started shopping. After a few months in isolation, I did a lot of research. I found an agent. I was intent on finding an agent of color. So that made it real, real small. And also agents who were interested in poets, because I was like, screw this. I'm a poet. I got this one prose book and then we going back. 
I don't know if I'm gonna hold myself to that because I freaking wrote a novel last summer, but we'll see what happens. So I found <laughs> this really, you know, like I mean, deeply wonderful agent, Larissa Mello Piankowski, who's over at Joe mm-hmm. Grimberg, and she was a poet in her past life. She had like taken classes mm-hmm. with like Reginald Dwayne Betts and a five Michael Weaver. So she was like, Oh, these people that you're talking about, like I'm losing it. Like she was so excited, right? Like, so that was one thing. And when I found her, she said, Listen, interviews are really notoriously hard to sell. We probably won't be able to sell it like this. I want to take you on, but can we think about just infusing a little more of your personal story into these essays? And I said, that seems weird. Like nobody wants to hear about me. Like there's all these famous writers in this book. I'm just kind of the vessel. And I was fine with that because this was a book about the elders. And so I sent her an essay that I had written that was a really like a personal essay. And she was like, oh. This is the book. Now you got to rewrite it, (laughs) the whole thing. And so at that point, I was still thinking, all right, I'm going to do these personal essays. We found an editor. You know, we we did a full two two or three round rewrite of the book so that it had all these personal essays and still had all the interviews intact. Like I was just like, maybe they won't see the interviews. We just sneak, (laughs) throw them in there, right? These editors won't notice that the interviews don't sell. (laughs) And I ran up against, you know, the wonderful folks at, at, at Beacon Press, Haley Lynch, who's my editor there. She said, listen, this is beautiful. But what is more interesting is the Black women's interior voice because we don't ever get to hear it, particularly yours. And I told my husband that night, I said, I think they want to hear about me. <laughs> like, that's the craziest thing. I, I'm like, somebody's going to pay me money to talk about me? Like, and I like, that's why I've been doing these poems. Ain't nobody trying to pay me no money. And so really, like, that's what happened. Over the course of the next year, they wrote the Publishers Weekly, like, announcement. And it said, uh, a hybrid memoir, cultural artifact. And I was like, y'all are lying. What are we going to do? What else are we going to do? Now I got to write what y'all said. And that's what I did. And that's what I did for the next year and a half. I, we rewrote the whole thing and it ended up being this like really beautiful, like it's a dream piece for me. I never imagined this was something that was going to come into space. And the way they've cared for it. I mean, look at the cover. You see this girl's fro biggest day on this cover. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they it's have really cared for this thing and for this set of voices and like this, you know, idea that black poets work in community in more ways than I can imagine. So it was a long road, but it was never, this was never what I imagined. When I say it's the book of my dreams, it's the book of my dreams. And I'm really grateful that it's here in the way that it is now. Yeah. Ooh, this, Ramika, this is the book of my dreams. <laughs> and oh, like, don't start. Listen, we are, we already here. And I love the way you explain that. So it's interesting the way the business side shaped the thing, but didn't, but, but added to it. Cause sometimes you hear about yeah. the business side of the work, taking away from the work that really needs to be done. It's usually the opposite, like yeah. gutting it. The yeah. business side, I will say, you know, and let's remember when I sold it though, you know, black was sexy in the middle of 2020, black lives matter is happening. There's protests everywhere. Right. 
Mm-hmm. So I come with this book called, you know, Soul Culture, Black Poets, right? And and I will say Honoré Fanon Jeffers gave me that title. She pulled it out of the out of the query that I had. She was like, oh no, your title is Soul Culture, which I just loved, right? And so, you know, it was the thing. Like people kind of wanted to, to capitalize on Black voices, but they sure didn't know what they were getting. They were like, oh man, now you now we give you money and now I just get to do what I want. So once they said, yeah, we want more of like this idea of how you felt in the space and how you wrestled with the work and how you have built a life just like they've built a life. Then it was we were off to the races. So as the as the book began to shift for you, was there a space where you were worried about possible pushback for focusing on the interior Kind of versus the collective, even though we we would still argue that this is ultimately about the collective. But is there has that been a concern even across your career, not just with soul culture, but writing about more interior subjects? Yeah, I mean, for, you know, for that bravery, I have to big up Elamar Wilson, who, you know, told me like black love poems. Like, when do we get to do that? Like, you got to keep writing. We need them, especially now. So that that gave me a little bit, you know more freedom to do that. I have to say, this might come from me just being an only child, but I'm pretty set in my space. Like I don't get, I don't get rattled a whole lot when I'm like decided on an idea. My ideas are good. Let me tell you. Listen, you know what I mean? I, know that's I right. tell, <laughs> you know, I tell my husband all the time, like I know. And he'd be like, you, you wrong so much. <laughs> you know what I mean? So my ideas are like good, but I did, you know, I do worry sometimes when the collective like, I don't want to seem insensitive. Like, yeah. I know yeah. we're thinking deeply about that. You know, I was writing Starlight and Arrow with my friend, you know, Romaine Brisbane got killed by police in 2014. Um, and this book was a real opportunity for me to just lay out the real dichotomy of love and fear that happens in a time like that. And as an artist, my fear is never like, going too far. My fear is making sure people know that ethics of care that we talked about earlier. Like just because I'm not saying nothing doesn't mean I don't care. Like I'm trying to find a way to work it into what I'm doing. But also I feel like black joy is imperative. (laughs) I mean, and for me writing soul culture and writing the black woman's interior you know, interjecting those stories about my husband kind of coming to me and coming back to me, you know, after being my little eighth grade boyfriend, my little seventh grade boyfriend. You know, I, I felt like it, it, there has to be a way for me to infuse what's happening in actual life and still deal with the fact that, you know, there is a lot of heartache and a lot of fear when you're building a family together. Right. You got these babies and you don't want to send them out in the world because look what they do in our babies. Right. So can I ask a parent question? Oh, of course. Because you just mentioned, you know, babies and how difficult that can be trying to navigate, you know, all of the complications that be. (laughs) Um, I Also, my favorite chapter slash essay in the book was the one with your stepdaughter, Beyonce. Oh, she's going to think she's famous now. Y'all done messed up. She is. (laughs) Listen, I currently have a teenager and two other little ones. And let me tell you, listen. But that did make me think about the decisions that we have to make around the ethics of our interior when our interior also includes other voices or other folks. Mm -hmm. And especially for mothers, because I think it's such a frowned upon thing to talk about sometimes the struggles of parenting when you're a mom. You know, when you're dead, you can talk so much trash you want to talk about when you're a mom. It's a very different conversations. I was wondering about how you balanced like that 
the the ethics and privacy of that okay. interior space, but also the public gaze on how we process parenting, right? So how did you stay true to yourself as a writer, but also balance that that narrative? Um, first and foremost, two things. First and foremost, to not think deeply about the public gaze while you're writing, right? Mm. I, I work really hard to like not censor myself in that way. You know, one thing that I probably told you that I tell everybody is when you're writing about family, like let the family see it, <laughs> you know, at a certain point. Right. Because I, I don't want no surprises. I don't want, you know, my uncle running up in there talking about, girl, I can't believe, you know, tearing up the reading. <laughs> and so for the kids, for the kids, you know, they have only known me as a writer. You know, mm-hmm. when when my husband and I got married, my daughter was 12. My, my son was four. He just graduated high school two weeks ago. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And so, hey, Michael, because, you know, you can't say one without saying the other. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so, you know, but they were they were four and 12. So they've only known me like in the thick of my writing life. I was very sparing in the poems that I wrote about them. I tried to make sure that I was like as honest as I could be about all of us in the situation. But I also shared their poems with them even when they were very young. So they understood like, oh, these poems are about our family. So it would be really weird if I wasn't here, right? And so by the time I got to this and started writing that essay, Girls Loving Beyonce and Their Names. And what was interesting about that essay in particular There had been a draft of it as a completely different thing um, that was published. I had sent it to my daughter. She was really happy with it. And my daughter, notoriously, she says all the time, I'm not really a reader. You know, I'll pick it up. You know, I'll definitely read your books, you know, because I'm nosy just like you. And so, you know, they'll they'll pick that stuff up. But she was actually the first person who read Soul Culture cover to cover. She had the very first galley. She was here visiting. She took it home. And I was like, yeah, you can have a galley thinking, you know, nothing was going to come of it except, you know, it was going to be cute. She could put it on her wall and show people that her name was in the book. And she read that thing cover to cover and called me crying from the plane. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, let me tell you, like, this really gives me a better idea of what you and dad were thinking during that time. And it was was the greatest gift to me because now she's an adult. She got her own kids now. Things are completely different. My perspective is completely different now that I'm an adult and I have my own kids now. But that really, that was the greatest gift to me that's happened since this book came out because you know, it was her really having a clear understanding of the fact that this was, it was so hard cobbling this whole family together. And we worked deeply at it every second of every day. I don't know if that would have come across in poems the way it came across in prose. I think it came across very differently for her. There's a poem that bears her name that had been in books already, you know. This essay really, you know, taught me kind of what you're thinking about. And also, these people are so smart that you're talking about. Like, who are these people? So it did all of the things that I was hoping it would do. I love that. I love how that seems like a special gift of prose, too, right? Yes, To offer more expansiveness. Absolutely. I think that also just says something about the accessibility of interiority because mm-hmm. like I'm wondering if the original book that you would have read if it's something that would have had her reading it and then looking at these poets like these well I wonder what their work is and I think this book means something very particular to me as a black girl who's been writing poems for mm-hmm. shoot 
you know, I don't know, since I was like 14, 13, whatever. Um, but the idea that other black girls can access this book mm. and it still have a kind of significance for them because of the way it's centered and not because and I don't mean accessible and because people, I think people like to use accessible in a real wild way when they're talking about black folks in their mm-hmm. work. You know, they like to, they like <laughs> oh. to use accessible and what you mean is not scholarly, not, you know, not uh-huh. all of these things. And so uh-huh. I just mean accessible in terms of your work does not exclude and it, it, it mm. draws folks in through its inter- interiority um it does easy and yes. it, it 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 really cemented I, I think i've been thinking a lot about what the book means for me as somebody who i'm like i'm entrenched ten toes down blinders on like looking at the poetry world but what it looks like for somebody not in that world to mm. come in and it just dawned on me that like yeah they have the additional kind of access because of what you offer oh, that's a real um, gift i thank you yeah. Oh, we thank you. We yeah, we do. <laughs> so, Ramika, you mention a lot in this text about how music is for soothing and generating new work, and we want to know what the soundtrack of your new work sounds like, which apparently also includes a novel. Random flex. We gonna come back to that. And just the novel, random flex of yeah. By the way, I wrote a novel. All the craft. <laughs> all, all of the things. What's the soundtrack sounding like? So there is a playlist for every single project. There's a playlist for Starlight and Air. There's a there's a like 45, 50 song playlist for Soul Culture. And I'm thinking of releasing when the book comes out. Drop the album. But, you know, music <laughs> comes up so much in the book like that, that it, it only became, you know, kind of a natural part of that writing. I will tell you, you know, the novel right now is uh, kind of set in the 80s and early 90s. The mm. last thing I added to the soundtrack for that novel was Tevin Campbell. Tell me what you want me to do. <laughs> Come on. Okay. Come on. I know that's right. <laughs> so that that fueled all kinds of other things. It's so, you know, why a black romance, right? And so that's interesting. I think the stuff that, you know, has continued to come together for Room Swept Home, I'm writing from like 1859 all the way up to, you know, the the at least the 1980s because I, I am, you know, kind of breached and born in the in the manuscript, but I just wrote a, a poem the other day about and added to the soundtrack of uh, Brooke Benton's Rainy Night in Georgia, because that was my grandmother's favorite song that she would play all the time. You know, there's all of these different kind of songs that keep coming up in the history of like family lineage, but also music just becomes such a huge part of my writing overall. It's an art that, you know, won't let me go and I'm not trying to get free of it anyway. I have a follow-up question then because I'm, I'm yeah. really invested in music Israel, right? Yes. Um, my whole critical research essay was on like the way that rappers have a, the same foundation as poets. So oh, I'm wondering... <laughs> I'm wondering if there is a way in which the type of music you're listening to changes better based on what you're writing or what Ooh. form you're playing with? Absolutely. Um, that's really interesting. You know, my craft lecture at the end of my low res was about hip hop as well. We'll have to come back and talk about <laughs> okay, that. Okay, y'all are when, cute. When they, look, when they walked into, you know, and I was at Bennington, like super Lily White program at the time. <laughs> when they walked into the big to the big lecture hall, I was bumping uh, Talib Kweli's Goodbye, right? Like it was, it was fun. So there's all of this interesting, you know, it was about the collective eye and hip hop and how it, how the community blurs back over into poetry. Look at that. I've been writing about this forever. I didn't realize yeah. it. Does my music change based on what I'm writing? Yes, because I'm usually going back to find music of the time. So mm-hmm. if I'm writing something historical, I'm 
moving like back through, you know, whatever, whatever they were playing in the sixties, that's what I'm listening to. Right. You know, what, whatever I imagine might've been, you know, something that could have come across. I was listening to Charleston the other day. Cause that was, you know, from the 1920s. Right. Because that was something that I remember my grandmother, like talking about fervently, like that was a big pop moment for mm-hmm. them. Right. Um, and so sometimes that happens when I'm, revising, I'm listening to Beyonce like pretty much exclusively, right? Because, you know, one, it's mostly fast stuff too. So I'm listening to Beyonce and and like not revising because it's like a fast process, but I need energy. Like I need to be given energy. And so that is often the case. If I'm not listening to her, I'll turn on Homecoming and I'll just be like, oh, Black excellence, I can do it. And then I'll, <laughs> I'll get myself together and keep writing. And so definitely like kind of upbeat, like no matter what I'm working on, I need like to be paced through it in the in the revision process. So so yeah, the, the writing definitely changes whatever I have on my playlist. Beautiful. Um, and I'm just going to advocate because I personally feel cheated because Starlight and Error is one of my favorites and I didn't even know that there was a, a playlist for this. So I, It will be in your inbox before the end of the day. I would never, I would never cheat you. <laughs> I was going to say, you send it. You know how I feel about that book. So I think, and I'm excited to ask you this in particular, this is kind of one of our questions we have for everybody, but you're so centered in literary lineage, is if you had to choose three people across any genre, any genre, dead, alive, whatever, who you were like, these are the three people who are are my lineage, are if you want to understand my work, these are the three people who you have to look at, who would those three people be? This answer, first of all, this answer would probably change every day, right? Like it depends on, you know, how I'm defining myself, the work that I'm thinking of in the moment. The one answer that I'm going to give you that would probably come back as one of the three every day is Lucille Clifton, because I'm absolutely a student of Miss Lucille's work kind of in every way that you can imagine, right? Thematically, I, I try, you know, uh, with economy of language, I'm I'm never going to be what Miss Lucille, you know, was or was able to do. But for sure, you know, I'm walking in in the path of Miss Lucille as much as I possibly can. Today, the second pers- person that came to mind, and I'm looking up because her picture is on a on a board that I have here, but Gwendolyn Brooks. And I think because so much is happening in form, I'm thinking so deeply about the the actual sonic quality, the beauty of language when you're wrestling with very difficult things. And so, I mean, really, like if you go back and read Gwendolyn Brooks aloud, like those early poems, I mean, it just blows your mind, like what she was able to craft. And so I'm really hoping that I'm like really trying to walk in the footsteps of like Gwendolyn Brooks. And then someone else, you know, who just comes back Anytime I'm thinking about prose, since I'm venturing into that space, it's got to be James Baldwin. I mean, mm-hmm. there is no one who, you know, there is no one who was writing essays the way James Baldwin, you know, you know, his, his, his prose sounds like poetry. I mean, there's just no, no other way to like, to think deeply about what's happening in this America than through the lens that Baldwin continued to shape for us. So yeah, those are my three for today. Okay, so 
We are going to play a little game called This Versus That. A classic. So we're going to give you two options, and you are going to tell us which would win in a fight and why. Oh, Lord. Okay. So we have Homecoming versus oh. Lemonade. Oh, no. Y'all are rude. <laughs> y'all are rude. See, I see. Okay. Well, see, we were friends until y'all <laughs> pulled this out. We could say that Homecoming, you know, is kind of the culmination of a career and includes much of Lemonade, right? Like, so there's that. There's like, and there's the live performance, not to mention, you know, the kind of homage to Black culture overall. But as a complete artwork that is a full narrative, there is nothing better in her voix than Lemonade, right? Like, I don't care what people say. I love Beyonce too. The album Beyonce, not just Beyonce. I like four too. You notice I didn't say love because <laughs> Lemonade and Homecoming. I like it. I like it. But I'm not going to say it's on the same. I'm not going to say it's on the same plateau as Beyonce and Lemonade because it's not. And so, you know, like it just depends on, it just depends on what I need in the moment. So if I'm looking for a concise, sharp, you know, narrative that is a fantastically told complete story, it's Lemonade. If I'm looking for an homage to culture that's expansive and huge, then it's Homecoming. And I'm, so then, I'm just going to say. So who wins? So who okay, has better hands, so though? Is it the narrative my, or the homage? Well, <laughs> Well, I thank Beyonce for homecoming like we friends in the back of soul culture. Like, if you read the acknowledgments, I'm like, thank you for homecoming and your display of black excellence, right? <laughs> because it really did inspire me. I was like, that'd be rude if you don't thank Beyonce. What if she read it one day? And so so for me today, right now, in an homage to soul culture, I'm going to say homecoming has better hands. Ooh, but don't right. come for me if you feel like it's lemonade because you see they back me into this corner. <laughs> There could only be one that wins the fight. You know what yeah, I mean? <laughs> yeah. God. But so I also yeah. love the way you phrase that. So which has better hands, homage, or... <laughs> that, that was... That's that really was what we narrative, narrative or homage. That was I very said, good. Now you did like, wow. literary flex. <laughs> yeah. Poets are wild, boy. I love that answer. That makes me smile. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So would you like to close us out with one last poem? Sure, sure. I will. So from that room swept home, it's definitely a manuscript. This poem isn't published anywhere, but I love it. Okay, an exclusive. We come with the new stuff. So I I mentioned my grandmother who was sent to the asylum. And so this poem kind of tells the story of that moment. Mary taken to the Central Lunatic Asylum for the Colored Insane, Petersburg, 1941. She will jump, she says. She no longer cares for the child after the fire of the mind has taken her clothes and shoes, her pious tongue, and thrown them into the street. The suffering grows in her, settles in her belly like snuff, and nothing comes as it should. Not a groan or holler, not the doctor on time, just the child mangling everything, and after, no blood. Two stories up, She warns everyone, the power and the spirit are coming. And when she gets a hold of the underside of her husband's skin, taking it with her over the steep ledge with her newborn screaming in the distance between them, the siren choir approaching with its fire and wings, her husband is dumbstruck when they ask if she is herself while she curses him, swearing 
In a rage, the words coming like spirit, her fists moving as fast as the mind, and everyone at arm's length bloodied and weary until she is handcuffed and sped away. God willing, she says to her husband, and something indecipherable as he signs the large green ledger, finally reverent, admitting the God who led him here who transfigured and loosed another not unlike herself, a body outside her body coming in another name. Oh my God. I'm still stuck on where you talked about the baby after no blood. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. That like true documented. I was able after 75 years, when I started doing this research, I was finally able to get my hands on the actual paperwork from the hospital. They sent me, you know, all of these pages from her admittance into the central lunatic asylum. And that's what happened. She said, you know, the blood never came after I was born. No doctor checked me after the baby came and she talked them through, as Black women often do in health crises, talked them through what was happening. I, I feel myself going crazy. I feel like something is happening in my body. I feel like something is going on. And she, even at the end of her life, was like the meekest church mouse, quiet, not the grandmother that ever yelled. So for her turning into a cussing, fighting, crazed, you know, person who's having an episode to me was kind of, you know, I can't imagine for my grandfather, it must've been like seeing the spirit coming down the road. So that was, you know, that, that's, that's part of what I've been thinking about. So you see why, so, you know, so, I so when you say we're going to get this book, I'll or... let you know, I'll let you know. Thank you so much for talking Thank with us today. It has been our pleasure. Thank yeah. you guys so much. Oh, wow. This conversation was such a gift. I'm just, I'm in awe at Ramika's wisdom and how much I learned talking to her, but then also at just the opportunity to have been in conversation with those authors who informed so much of her own writing. Like, who I should be so lucky. Listen, <laughs> yeah, I'm wildly emotional. And I think what Soul Culture did for me was force me to really think about what I've inherited and what I've come into mm. as a Black woman writer and who I'm in conversation with and also whose work transformed me. Mm. I don't know who who is that for you. Off off top, Toni Morrison. Easy, easy answer. Song of Solomon, Pilot Dead is, Pilot Dead is still without question my favorite character. I feel like that is a character who, when I think about my pedagogy in a way I want to live my life, I'm like, oh, I don't even think about real life people. I'm like, oh, pilot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if I could just love like pilot. And so that story was so transformational for me that it like literally lives in me. Asha Bendeli's The Prisoner's Wife was one of the first memoirs that I read. And it begins, this is a love story. And that book, I think it was the first book that maybe hinted at abolition before I knew a language for that. It made me think about love outside of practicality. Um, I think Asha was my first glimpse at me rooting for somebody who it felt like I'm like, ooh, I, this is, you know, this goes against all the practicalities maybe that my family taught me. And it really made me think deeper about like ethics and and who gets to have love and who gets to have romance and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. So I think that it shifted the way that I write even now that I'm thinking about it, because I think what I always want to put first in my writing is the tenderness. And I think I got that from Pilot via Toni Morrison and from Asha. 
I read The Prisoner's Wife because of you. You were like, you were like, if you want to understand me, <laughs> to read these books. And I said, okay, <laughs> I'm gonna read these books best. And I did. It's also Tony, but it's The Bluest Eye. I read The Bluest Eye in high school. And I say this all the time, but Pecola Breedlove's character has haunted me ever since. And also how much I laugh. And like, Tony is funny. Like, <laughs> like Tony Morrison is hilarious. <laughs> Not to just be called an elder by her first name, but you know what I mean? Yes. Mama Morrison. She's hilarious. <laughs> and then Alice Walker. And I think, I think I only have language for what Alice Walker did for me now, but I think she gave me a language for faith and for the presence of faith in writing that wasn't what I was used to. And that was like very black and like very reconciling with, with this faith that has been for a lot of us and like herited in strange ways. And the, I don't know, the color purple did a lot for me. Hey, shout out to black women writers. Period. Shout out to walking into a canon that's so fruitful that like, we can't help but bear fruit because of it. Whew. You got anybody you want to thank this? I am going to thank, okay, I'm going to thank my Nana and my Papa, who drove me to poetry classes every week, a 45-minute drive in rush hour. <laughs> I remember ways. those days. <laughs> yes, you remember the vibes. And nobody understood why I was so particularly fixated, but they were like, girl wants to be involved, Okay. <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna gang up as a village. So I likely would not be doing a lot of the things I'm doing if they did not rearrange the entirety of their schedules to make sure that they could drive me out for poetry every week. Oh. Who would you like to think best? I think I'm gonna thank the English teachers at Cass Technical High School circa two thousand to two thousand five. Well, two thousand and one and two thousand and five. Um my teachers were so black and so dedicated to making sure that we knew the canon. Um, and so I always feel really lucky to know that I read not first, my first exposure to Toni Morrison was in high school. The first mm-hmm. time I read Song of Solomon was 11th grade. I read Beloved in 12th grade. I read The Bluest Eye in 10th grade. Um, we just... I don't know. I didn't I didn't realize what I had until I got to college. And there were so many people who were like, oh, I've never read this or I've never heard of this author. So shout out to them for making sure that that wasn't my experience. And that when I walked into adulthood, I already had so many like ancestors behind me and writers behind me. We also want to give our thank yous to the Poetry Foundation, to Itzel Blancas, to Ibalmi Noriega, to Elon Sloan, and Sen Pim and Ombi Productions. And of course, to Ramika Bingham Risher for being a phenomenal guest and wildly generous, um, not just in this podcast episode, but for many years at this point in me and Brittany's lives. Absolutely. Lastly, please like, rate, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. And we will see you in two weeks. Bye, y'all. Bye.